Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great day today. We're going to do a, sort of a roundabout deep dive on a topic we thought we were fairly familiar with, Rendlesham Forest. And uh, we've talked to like um, John Burroughs at this point. Gary Osborne's done some work in uh, regards to the code and everything else. But apparently, Rendlesham was not just a couple days. It wasn't just a craft or two. It was over a dozen and spanned damn near a week. And a lot of information has been subsequently scrubbed. News to me, I'm sure to you as well, and to many of our viewers. So yeah. we want to challenge the man making the claims and uh, see what uh, what basis he has for backing this up. Yeah, what are you thinking about today's show, Jay? Are you conflicted? Are you excited? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what he's got to say. And the thing is, too, um, because we look at things at you know, every angle that we can or cover every subject that we can, we have to give... Um, people like gary you know a voice we got to listen to what he's got to say and this guy is a professional you know uh, interviewer and he's done tons of shows and lectures and uh, he knows what he's doing plus he worked as a police officer detective so uh, he knows how to investigate cases so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing what he's got to, to educate us on today for sure yeah i mean a lot of people that are investigators have essentially have a, a base or broad knowledge of investigative techniques that's very different from somebody who made a living off of investigating homicides, rapes, missing persons, where people's lives and families and everything else is at stake. And you're also representing the state and country that you work with, right? So mm -hmm. to do a forensic investigation of something involves tools that you only learn in the field and usually only from doing it as your professional job. So it'll be interesting. It won't be anecdotal. Uh, Gary claims that he has information that nobody else has brought forward about this. So we don't want to necessarily beat Rendlesham to death if you know the story, but we want to find out those additional pieces that we didn't know and maybe you didn't know as well. So let's have a little bit of fun. We'll do a, a quasi deep dive. We'll meet a new friend and we'll be right back here in just a few minutes on UAP Studies Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my good friend, Mr. Jason Gilmet. It's it's an early recording for us and a late recording for Gary today, right? That's right. Yeah, our guest joins us from uh, the UK, which is uh, our second largest audience beside the United States. So hello to all of our UK fans. We, uh, we love you all and see everything that you guys write and comment and... Uh, it's great to be with everybody today. And uh, today's guest is another bright mind on the subject. You know, we always do our best to bring the smartest people, the people with the most insight, the best food for thought. And uh, Gary Heseltine is the author of uh, Non-Human, The Rendlesham Forest Incidents, 42 Years of Denial. He's also a retired RAF. There it is right there. Yeah. Uh, a retired RAF police officer, uh, police detective, I should say, for 19 years. And uh, he's the editor of UFO Truth Magazine, amongst other things. We're going to chew the fat and talk about everything happening in the UFO world, as well as dabble in uh, Rendlesham. Uh, but before we do that, a warm welcome to the show, Gary Heseltine. Thank Heseltine. you for inviting me as a guest. It's an honor. Yes. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself for anybody who may be not uh, familiar with you. Uh, tell us what got you into the strange world of uh, UFO research. Okay. Uh, I had a childhood sighting at the age of 16. Uh, that kind of created an interest. Um, I then kind of went away for a long period, just enjoyed life, 
joined the Air Force for six years between 1983 and 1989. And then uh, in 1989, I joined the British Transport Police for a 24-year career. Um, the last 19 years were as a detective constable. Not a high rank, but I didn't want to go high because I liked interviewing. <clears throat> so that was my particular interest. So I became a specialist interviewer of suspects and witnesses, qualified for murder, manslaughter, rape. Um, during the time when I was still a detective, I created an unofficial national police database in the UK for UK police officers to report sightings. But it also collated historical accounts involving police officers. So that's what, in a sense, introduced me to the uh, the audience, uh, the U4 audience, and I started to be asked to do lectures around the country in the UK about my police sightings, something that I'd never actually uh, thought of. Uh, I didn't think that would be a spin-off, but it did. Eventually, in uh, 2010, because of my work with police officers, um, Steve Bassett, PRG, invited me over to Washington, D.C., to the National Press Club, and I was awarded the Disclosure Award, uh, which was a huge honour and totally unexpected. And that opened me up to an international audience. And since then, I've done uh, lectures in now over 22 countries. So I'm extremely fortunate to do something that I'm passionate about. Um, I'm one of the leading researchers into Reynolds from Forest, uh, which obviously happened in the UK. And the quirk there with Reynolds from me is that uh, for three of my six years in the Royal Air Force Police, I did exactly the same job as the US Air Force security policemen did at Rendlesham, i.e. I guarded tactical nuclear weapons at two nuclear weapons storage areas. Uh, so I have an insight that most people don't have, and I always suspected there were many more witnesses, and uh, that that's borne out by my research. And five years ago, I began a really deep dive into uh, the Rendlesham Forest case. I thought I knew it pretty well. Um, but I found a lot of new material, both old and new. I did uh, uh, some uh, advanced interviews on a couple of, of witnesses, uh, military witnesses, uh, that seemed to work because it produced a lot more evidence than was ever known. Uh, and, uh, you know, the book was released in February. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's 500 pages. And, and my remit was to really take personality out of what is a very complex case and use my former detective skills to analyse and assess the best information from the whole case, uh, literally from day one after it. Uh, and that's obviously 42 years. And in the end, I, I was able to establish that there'd been, over the late Christmas period, uh, 17 different timed UFO incidents, none of which could be where where the UFO, UAP, whatever you want to call it, could be described in any terrestrial, you know, uh, object. Uh, so the 17 anomalous events over what is probably a, a four-day night or four-night period, consecutive night period. But, we, you know, I also uncovered that there was an incident on the 23rd of December, which nobody was aware of, um, which you know, was totally unknown. I spoke to a lot of the old, uh, the, the witnesses who were known and then said, look, can I try interviewing a certain style, uh, which totally isn't designed 
you know, to work 40 odd years later. It's designed to work within days. But my reasoning for doing that was that if you've had a really, really a major incident in your life, whatever it is, a car crash, a murder or something like that, terrorist bombing, it's, that incident is pretty much scarred into your brain. And it's really just a question of whether you can use memory tools to, to recover some of the memories. They're in there. It's a question of whether you can recover them. And I was taught certain techniques to recover memories and not, not hypnosis or anything like that. You can't hypnotize people when you're 2,000 miles away, uh, like on a transatlantic phone call. Uh, but it, it worked on two major interviews that I did with a, a Sergeant Adrian Bastinza and with an airman called Steve Longero. Uh, and we can talk about that in due course. But that's kind of my background. And uh, obviously, I retired early in 2013 to launch my own online easing called UFO Truth magazine. Uh, it's not in print. It's bi-monthly. It features articles by many of the world's top researchers who I've obviously met over this period of time now because I've been in public UFO research now since uh, January 2002. So now 21 years. Uh, so I've been around a while now and pretty much met everybody who is everybody. Uh, in recent years, I've become involved in an organisation, and uh, an NGO, an international NGO, non-government organisation, called ISA, the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research, of which I'm the vice president and one of the founder members. Uh, and in that capacity, we now, well, ISA is made up of academics, scientists, and leading UFO, UAP researchers. And we now have national representatives in 30 countries. And our tagline is preparing for contact. And I can't think that there's ever been a time in my life where we are potentially on the brink of a paradigm shift in, in the knowledge of this uh, subject. Uh, and so that's where we are now. You know, So we've also got a project called Project Titan that a lot of people may be following, which is a United Nations initiative uh, where you need a country to adopt a, uh, a kind of a policy, an initiative, which the small Republic of San Marino which is landlocked by Italy, but it's its own state, has backed our Project Titan, and they're now in the process of going to the United Nations to talk about UFOs. So that's still ongoing. They can't really say too much about it, but we're talking at some high level there with ministers and things like that. Nice. Uh, when, well, since your experience, you know, police officer, investigator, I mean, you've investigated major cases by, you know, what your description, that that's... Uh, that's holy crap cases that, you know, you need to be good at your job to be able to solve. But, you know, we talk to a lot of people and, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is in their character is that they, it seems legit. Like they don't flinch when they talk about their story. They're like, no, this, it seems almost compelling, you know, with the way that they're telling it to us. I understand if somebody's not, you know, inundated with UFO stuff, like we are all week long, but, to me, it seems like these people are are not there. There's no BS the to their of, stories, right? Yeah, so the, the majority the majority of people that you speak to, you can tell within a minute or two if they're sincere, right? You, and, you kind of feel what they're saying, and it's not absolute correct, but more than likely you are going to be right. 
that, that most people are sincere in what they're reporting. Now, it may turn out that there is a logical explanation. It doesn't mean what they've seen is extraterrestrial every time, but what they are reporting is a sincere event that's open to interpretation, put it that way. Right. And, and with, uh, could you give us like some advice or maybe some tips of what to look for? Cause, uh, when we interview people or, you know, any investigator out there that's doing field work, you know, people like in MUFON, for instance, what to look for when somebody's telling you a story and how to basically build a case from there. Well, I, th I think, I mean, in, t in terms of the fact that I was an advanced interviewer for suspects and witnesses, there are two very different techniques. But from a from a witness's point of view, I guess what you're asking me is why do you know why do you think it's credible what they're saying, or could they be lying? So you're then actually looking at it from a slightly suspicious angle. What would give it away? Well, people, I would say there is a few non-verbal communications. People who uh, avoid eye contact struggle to make eye contact with you when you're asking some difficult questions. You know you know, tell me about it. And if they're looking around, it it's not absolute this. Uh, people who are sweating a lot, people who are like tapping one leg a lot, you know, seem irritable. Uh, uh, if you, when you, when you talk advanced interview, when you're actually interviewing a major suspect, you, you don't do it face to face like you see on the TV. You do it at an angle. Of 45 degrees uh there may be two of you but the lead interview and there was always a proper lead interviewer who's actually in charge of both it's never like you see on telly one interview going there and then the bouncing in and that's that's just not right on advanced interview there's basically a lead interview and he is the lead going into that interview and he only hands over to his number two when he is thinking what am i going to think of next and he wants to change tack, and he'll hand it over to his number two. So the lead interview would normally be sat at 45 degrees. And the reason why you sat at 45 degrees is you see the leg tapping. You see the beads of sweat. Uh, you see the, you know, gulp before they start speaking, which is indicative that they might not be telling the truth. It's not an absolute science. Um, but there are things like that that you can look for. Um, people who, who will say, well, we, I went to, see what I did there? We and then changed quickly to I. Right. And you almost, it's almost so fast that you don't pick it up. But a good interview will pick up on that. Uh, somebody who was unsure about, I mean, I can give you an example why I'm suspicious of the alleged binary codes that are mentioned in Reynolds from Forest. Uh, Jim Pennison's account of the binary codes to me is suspicious. No, I'm not calling him a liar, but I find it suspicious as a former detective for the simple reason is that when he first introduced them, he did it at a live con at a conference uh, in Woodbridge in in uh, 2000, which was the 30th anniversary. All right, and he did it to about an audience of 400, and he basically stood on stage and said, "I, you know." I, I had a download of information uh, that I had to write down the next day and I didn't know what it was and I thought it was gibberish, but I wrote down 001110 uh, pages and pages. 
Well, he told the audience that he didn't know what it was, but actually in the same, and, and the audience were like, why are you telling us this 30 years after the event, which is a good question. He said he couldn't tell anyone because who believed him, you know, he feared for his career. Well, that's fine while you're in the Air Force, but you retired in 1993, I think. So why didn't you say it afterwards, you know, eight years afterwards or 13 years afterwards? So uh, he said, oh, who could I tell? Well, the person he most logically could have told was John Burroughs, who was with him. And literally, John Burroughs was only 20, 30 feet away from him at the time he touched the craft, etc. Um, he'd gone on various radio shows and people had said to him, and when you touched the craft, you know, did you feel anything? And he'd said, well, that it was like warm to the touch. It was like glass. It's like raised etchings on the symbols. And he'd had lots of opportunities to say I'd had some kind of a strange experience. And even at that same conference in 2010, he actually, because the audience were like taking in this new information, 30 years, there's a download, what does it mean? And he was being hesitant about what it meant because he, he was signed to do a, uh, he was taking part in a documentary and they were um, looking into the information that come out. So he wasn't really giving much to the audience, but they were saying, well, you know, what's this all about? It seems a strange coincidence 30 years on on the anniversary. So anyway, there was a bit of kickback from the audience and uh, he wasn't comfortable with that. You clearly, there is a video of this. It's in the book, uh, the reference to it, but there's a, somebody filmed uh, this kind of two hour exchange and uh, he looks distinctly uncomfortable when people are asking audience and were a bit incredulous. But actually at one point in the audience, uh, in, in, in during this period where people are kind of asking a few questions, he actually said he didn't know what it was. But because he did it so quick, the audience didn't, they were still dealing with the initial, you know, this story. But he actually, when he did with the transcript, which is in the book, you'll see that he actually said, I knew what it was. Because in 1994, I was hypnotized. And then I, I uh, and that part of that transcript of that hypnotism session uh, was in a book by Linda Moulton Hogue. Linda Moulton Howe called Glimpses of Other Realities that came out in 1998. So how could he be saying on the one hand to the audience that he didn't know what it was, thought it was gibberish, and then actually slipping it in that he did? But that was lost on the audience. But then a few days later, he went on uh, a, an American radio show called the Angela Joyner radio show. Angela's sadly not with us anymore, but the, the, obviously the audio, and I did a, a transcript of it. And if you listen to that, Angela Joyner is like at times flabbergasted by some of his responses because they're all over the place. You know, and he's saying he didn't know what it was. And then the next minute he's saying, well, I, I knew what it was. So she's trying to make head and a tail of this. But one of the things that really kind of surprised me is when this story of binary code down and he wrote it in his notebook, by the way, the notebook that he wrote it in, the police notebook, didn't surface in documentaries until about 1997, 17 years after the event. And, and, when, and when he first started talking about binary codes, I emailed Colonel Holt and said, what do you reckon to this alleged binary code story? And he went, well, I've looked through that notebook several times. I've never seen any pages. And he won't say he'd looked through maybe every page, but he hadn't noticed them. And certainly Jim had never referenced to him about them, which is a bit odd, I think. Um, uh, but the thing that really made me threw up a red flag for me was when he said initially that there were only six pages of 
zeros and zero zero ones, you know, zeros and ones. And then he said there was about eight pages. And then he said there were about nine pages. Then it was about 12 pages. Then it was about 13 pages. And in the end, it's 16 pages. Now, if you've had this extraordinary event in your life, a one-off event scarred into your memory, I think, personally, I would know how many pages I wrote down. Do you not think? Because even if initially he didn't know, somebody had said, well, how many pages did you write? And he'd go, no, six. He'd know the answer straight away. You're with me? So he'd never have to go back to it. It'd stick in your mind. You won't do it again every time. Well, trying to find how many pages, it would just stick. Oh, uh, yeah, another uh, journalist asked me that. It's eight pages. You see what I mean? It would be a consistent answer. And the fact that he, he, he at various times within weeks of announcing this, said different pages. And I'm thinking, well, that just don't ring true. This is the most profound thing that's happened in your life. And you'd know how many pages of bizarre writing you wrote down, surely. But anyway, it's not definitive, but I, I'm and I'm not saying people can't have extraordinary downloads of information. I think you can. And I think historically there's maybe some evidence of that. Even from the likes of uh, Autom automatic writing, as it's called, you know, there are examples of that. So I, I kind of think that it can happen, but I'm not convinced by the inconsistencies uh, of his testimony. If you ever read the Angela Joyner interview that's in the book, I think you'll find that it's quite a, a, a strange interview. I want to take you back to what you were mentioning before about investigation techniques, uh, interrogation techniques, body language, that sort of thing. As you know, we have David Grush, recent whistleblower, came out, gave amazing story. And then the world of UFO Twitter and social media started throwing stones, saying his body language was off. He looked fidgety. He looked like he was, you know, eye contact wasn't normal. Then there was some discussion about potentially autism or high functioning Asperger's. So where does somebody that maybe has slight awkwardness in their social mannerisms, where does that factor into, you know, maybe they're displaying signs of nervousness, tapping their feet. I've talked with some people that, you know, work for me and they're not lying when I ask them a question, but socially they're like, you awkward. would think that this guy just committed a murder, right? It's just their nature. Well, it's perhaps something well, else. So where does I, that factor I, into what you do? It factors into all the other facts. And uh, for example, with David Grush, uh, yes, I've obviously read about uh, uh, these comments and whatever, but you have to put it in the context. Now, the first question I'd be saying is from a, you've got this kind of witness coming out with an incredible story. You'd say, well, does his military record stack up? It does. Nobody's laid a finger on him. Uh, he then joined the intelligence community and had a long career in that. Does that stack up? Did he flake out? You know, was he kicked out? Was there a, did he get, you know, was he kicked out under some cloud? The answer is no. Are there anybody of high ranks backing him up? Apparently so, there are. So, you know, the fact that he may be socially awkward, then he's put into context. And I think that what a lot of people don't do is context. Context is everything. And if you read my book, you'll see that I, right at the beginning, I say context is everything. Because if you don't give something context, you're actually giving it something that doesn't have the inflections, the way that when we when we speak, we speak with an emphasis. Uh, and like one of the things that was uh, really um, 
discussed in the book. I, I, I'm not going to put, well, I am going to put you on the spot. Have you both read the book? I have not. not no, we have not. Right, right. Well, you're at a disadvantage then because I could be saying anything. Yeah. And you, it's okay. You, we have you, good you, interviewing you, skills as well. Right. No, okay. <laughs> All right. But, we can but tell I who's lying, Gary. I, I suggest that you read the book because uh, when you read the book, you will see that there's um, um, uh, an admission made by Colonel Holt in 1985. Yes, 1985, just five years after the incident. And I'm calling it a genuine admission that he made to a MUFON researcher called Ray Boucher, who with his colleague Scott Colburn for three years between 1984 and 1986 heavily researched the Reynolds and Forest incident. Now, to all but MUFON people, and a few little anecdotal references in Rendlesham books, they are largely unknown. And that, in the Rendlesham sense, is absolutely outrageous for me because they arguably did the best three years of research that anybody had done. All right, so I really want to panic them on the back. Now, the context of what I'm going to say begins with a Ray Boucher because when I first um, became aware of him and I'd read one or two of his articles that were in old historical UFO publications. Um, I uh, emailed him on social media. Uh, no, I contacted him on Facebook. And uh, I said, you know, can we have a chat? And he said, yeah. So we had a chat. We had a Skype chat. And we got on famously. And I said to him, you know, you three years of research. He says, you know, I think you've done some good work. I said, but I don't suppose you've still got your research notes. And he went, yeah, I'll have them somewhere. And I'm thinking, you know, this is 2018 and they're going back to 1986 kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, if you could find them, I'd, I'd love to read through them because, you know, I know that you've done some good stuff, but I'd like to go through it all. And he said, well, leave it leave it to me and uh, I'll get back to you. And I'm thinking, to be honest, yeah, the odds are very slim because it's so long ago. Who keeps all the records? Well, about three weeks later, out of the blue, he sends me a PDF with 345 pages of scanned material. Wow. And I went, whoa, thank you very much, Ray. And during the course of going through these pages, which I printed off, uh, and, I, and I read them in one session, that's how excited I was. I, like, worked through them. I, I, I kind of did them in one session. And I suddenly came across this reference to him ringing Colonel Holt. Um, and uh, it was in April of 1985. And what he'd done is he basically put down the word verbatim, and there was a quote. And what I'm talking about context now comes into play, and it's a really important context. When he rang uh, Colonel Holt, out the blue and spoke to him on the telephone. He'd never prior had a conversation with him. And uh, it was literally for the first time. He was aware of him because of his involvement in the case, the whole memorandum, the audio tape. But anyway, he'd rang him. Now, here's the key thing to remember. Colonel Holt was not this TV personality that he has become after he retired and has done 30, 40 documentaries. English speaking. So he's become something of a TV personality within the UFO field. However, this is 1985, and this is six years before he retires. Okay? 
And so he rings him up out of the blue. And to put it into context, the story why he rang him is because Scott Colburn and Ray Boucher lived in Nebraska. And their state senator was Senator James Exxon, who was a long-standing senator on the Arms Services Committee. And uh, so when Ray and Scott heard of the Rendlesham case, and it largely involved American uh, security police officers, US Air Force security police officers, they went to uh, personally met with the senator and said, look, you know, are you not interested in this case? Because it involves American servicemen. And uh, at first he was reluctant. But they said, well, if you if we get more evidence, will you get be more interested? And he said, well, OK, maybe. Uh, and so anyway, in the process of trying to get more evidence, uh, Scott Colburn and Ray Boucher had interviewed a few military witnesses involved, including Sergeant Adrian Bustinger, including Larry Warren, who turned out to be the original military whistleblower. All right. And so where by the time he suddenly rings Colonel Holt, he's already spoken to several people who claimed to be at the scene of what was a landing. Okay, they both described a landing, and this is the controversial account where they say it was being filmed on movie motion picture cameras, video cameras, so not still photographs. Uh, that there was a cordon of security police officers around what was originally a, a, a strange ground hugging mist. That it was being filmed, and that uh, the base commander, Colonel Williams. The base command, the guy in charge of the twin bases of 12,000 personnel was present in this field at this scene of this landing. Now, this isn't the Jim Peniston landing. This, the key thing here is this is not the first night landing of the small three metre by three metre object in a small clearing. This is a clearly reference to the landing, but it's controversial. So, basically, that's the scenario. So, Ray... Boucher has spoken to two witnesses who say that they were present at the scene of a landing, that there were security police around it, that it was being filmed, and the Colonel Williams was there. So when he rings uh, Charles Holt, he says, well, I've spoken to Larry Warren, I've spoken to Sergeant Adrian Mustinger, and they say this, 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 and this. And the response that he wrote down verbatim in his notes was, Yes, I can verify that. I can substantiate all of that for the senator. And he wrote it down, that, that one sentence, he wrote it down verbatim. Now, so that to me says that Holt was given all the circumstances, that it was surrounded by security police officers, that was a second, there was a craft there, that Colonel Williams, the base commander, was there, and it was being filmed, security police officers all around it. And he was saying, yes, I can verify that for the sensor. I can substantiate all of that. That's an admission because he wrote it down. And the thing, the strange thing after that is when they went back with X to Exxon, they never were able to get in touch with him direct again. And what they later found out, that Colonel Holt had been to see Exxon, James Exxon, the senator, and whatever had happened had meant that Senator James Exxon didn't want to talk to Ray and Scott anymore. So whether they'd been scared off or whatever, I don't know. But something clearly had happened because the relationship had changed. But here's the thing. Ray Boucher 
was really a quite persistent researcher, good researcher. He was dogged. And he didn't want to let this go. He didn't want to let this admission go. So that here's the context. So he kept writing letter after letter to the staff of uh, Senator Exxon. And all these letters he kept that were in his research. So when we talk about context, the context surrounding this admission are crucial. And so when somebody would say, well, maybe Holt just answered it and he, and he wrote it down wrong, or he was, you know, the, the, the admission is unambiguous. It wasn't. It was flagged up as verbatim in his notes. And when he wrote all the letters to Senator Exxon, trying to get him, you know, get through to him, he wrote paragraphs where he laid out the circumstances. And several of these are in the letter reprinted, where he's saying, you know, I'd spoken to X and X and X. Uh, there was a, a landing of a larger craft. Uh, it was surrounded by security police officers. Uh, the base commander there of 12,000 people was there. Uh, and it was all being filmed on motion picture footage, that kind of thing. So there was no ambiguity whatsoever. So nobody could claim that it was an ambiguous comment. And I think that that was an absolutely valid admission that Colonel Holt said in 1985, six years before he retired, that he has denied ever since, denied admitting that to Ray Boucher. Oh, yeah, the guy just pestered me. I, I never said that. I had a seven-year collaboration period with Colonel Holt, and initially I thought, this is great. Um, we were working on a potential film script, because I always think that one day this Reynolds Riquet will be made into a film, but it's very, very complicated. There isn't a, a heroic figure like a Harrison Ford figure to pull it all together. It's complicated, multiple people, multiple shifts, so it's complicated. But I still think it will happen. And basically, I think that what... Holt did was a perfect admission and then uh, something happened and then after he retired he was then just totally denied it and over my seven years he'd said originally that he'd tell me everything that he knew and at first I accepted him because I didn't know him but over a period of time over that seven years I began to realize the way he worked the way he answered conversations when he was being quizzed and it hinted at that he knew a lot more and actually I actually proved that he could lie at times, and he'd lied to me personally. Uh, an example of that was for the UFO Hunters program in December of 2007, actually where we first met. I'd requested that we go to the top of the weapon storage area, the high tower, and uh, myself and Colonel Hall went to the top. I'd got my personal video recorder with me, and he'd already told me this, and I said, well, on camera, would you just repeat what you'd already told me? And he said, yeah. The guy in the tower had contacted him. He'd initiated the conversation and he'd told him in no uncertain terms, this is actually almost an exact verbatim quote, uh, in no uncertain terms, the guy in the tower had said that there had been a beam from a UFO shone into the weapon storage area and, and he added this on, which I didn't expect, and that two people on the ground walking around inside the weapon storage area had seen the beam too. So that's actually three witnesses there. Now, when his book, The Holt Perspective, came out, I think 2015, 2016, no mention of this video interview that's been flagged up on my uh, YouTube page, magazine YouTube page, for years, because he said that. You can't take it back when you've said that on camera, and yet there's no mention of it ever again. And so for me, 
and he's denied saying it subsequently. Denied saying uh, that there, there, there were definitely beams going into the weapon storage area. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Clearly, you did, because it's on video. And see what I mean? So the fact is that if you're a colonel, and in the UFO world, there are very few good uh, investigators uh, who would challenge the story of a, a colonel um, or point out contradictions or irregularities, questions. And he get it basically gets away with it. Nobody challenges him. But that's wrong because if you can get, uh, you know, Nixon <laughs> put out of office for lying, if you can get, you know, the Iran-Contra, you know, generals and colonels lying over arms deals and things like that, people could lie. So what I'm saying is he knows a lot more, and I, I ended the seven-year association because I realised he knew a lot more and he was also capable of lying. What do you think the, I wouldn't say fascination, but we have so many documented cases of military bases around the world having these strange crafts sort of look at the weaponry, even now with the uh, the ships that the states have, you know, they're all run on nuclear power. And it seems like now there's a, an interest between these objects or these entities with the nuclear power. Yeah. Do you think it's more that it's a threat to ourselves or it's, is it a threat to them or is it a mutual threat at this point? I think, I think ultimately I don't know the real answer, but I can speculate which I tend not to do, but sometimes you're asked these kind of questions, so you've got to kind of come up with something. Right. And I've always I've always felt that there is clearly, historically, when you look at the best evidence, a huge correlation between UFOs turning up around anything nuclear, whether it's a power plant, uh, a, you know, a powered uh, weapon storage area or a nuclear submarine or a, a you know, nuclear battleship, whatever. Um, and uh, aircraft carry, and, and that has gone back to the nine, to the nineteen forties. I think they've been around since then, and I think that they're around in bigger numbers when we detonate the first atomic bomb. And I think that sends a shockwave out into space, uh, in the same way that if if now we monitor various planets through the satellites that we've got out there and the telescopes, if say for example there was a huge what looked like plume explosion on Venus, we'd be able to capture it with our uh, sensitive instruments now, and we'd think, well, that looked like an explosion or an, uh, a nuclear explosion. We'd analyse it. Well, I think that if you're an advanced race and you're out there, they could have picked up on our initial detect uh, detonations and it sent shockwaves into space, and then they thought, well, this little planet has reached the technical development where they're capable of destroying it destroying the planet. Right. So I think that's why they come in numbers. Uh, they don't appear to interfere, at least not in the public domain, in in our history, other than being seen in petroglyphs and, you know, probably been coming for thousands of years. They may, even, it, they may have even come very long time ago. Uh, I always say this, that we could be Martians, and it sounds crazy, but we, it's it's absolutely sensible because we know now that Mars had a, an atmosphere, that it had oceans uh, before it became a dead planet. So something truly extraordinary happened to the planet. Now, if you had, and it's much older than the Earth, if you developed a technological uh, age 
on Mars, and then suddenly, for whatever, there was a climatic change and, and you, your planet was dying, what would you do? You'd, you'd go to your nearest planet that you could survive on and try to repopulate again. It's what we do in science fiction movies all the time. You know, we want to get a moon base, we want to get a Mars base. We still want that. Well, what if you were technically capable of doing that to a dying planet millions of years ago and they came here and they kind of seeded us and upgraded us? Who knows if you're technically that advanced? So I think it's they, they if they did that, it's only what we would do if the Earth was uh, faced with a similar kind of, 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 of a terrible disaster awaiting us. We'd try to save some aspects of humanity elsewhere, and we'd go to the moon, we'd go to Mars, we'd get everything done before the, the worst happened. So we'd try to survive, and I think that's entirely feasible. Uh, but personally, I think that one of the reasons why uh, they're interested in nuclear weapons is because in our bit of the cosmic neighbourhood, and I don't know this, this is just speculation. In our bit of the cosmic neighborhood, I think we might be a bit like an oasis in the desert in terms of the amount of water this planet has and the amount of diverse life and fauna, all those different species of plants and animals and whatever. We might just be like a real juicy little planet going around an obscure little sun uh, but in our bit of cosmic neighborhood, it might actually be a bit of a jewel, a bit like the Galapagos Islands or a bit like the Great Barrier Reef, an area of special interest. So if we were like that, and there would undoubtedly be an element of space tourism from aliens, not only scientific, that if you were that advanced, you would also visit other planets as tourism. They mm. would look at us and think, we don't want to see that little planet destroyed by themselves because they've now got the ability to destroy it through nuclear weapons. So that's one aspect. So, so there's that. But I also think that and a more uh, probably a more likely thing, uh, because we know that UFOs have been seen coming in out of large bodies of water for, for many centuries, but obviously over the last 75 years of recorded modern era, we know that that happens worldwide. I suspect in our deepest ocean trenches that there are underwater bases that have been rumoured, uh, and it would make sense. But that then says two possibilities. One, it's a very old civilization that's earthbound that have lived here alongside of us, but basically live separate to us, and they have no contact. If you've ever seen the Hollywood film The Abyss, it's kind of a, that scenario could be exactly like what's happened, that they're, you know, keep themselves to themselves and there's very little interaction. Or that they do have, in the same way that we would look to have moon bases, Mars bases, they've got bases here. So they've got personnel, for want of a better word, here. Now, you wouldn't want to see your bases destroyed in a cataclysm that could be uh, you know, avoided. And I think that's probably the primary reason why some of the cases why there is this interest in nuclear weapons because i think if we destroyed the planet we then render our oceans uninhabitable that affects the civilization that may be living in our deepest trenches and the key fact in all this that i find really interesting is that we know more about the surface of the moon and mars than we do about our deepest oceans we only know about five to ten percent of what's in the ocean 
You think about that. It's 90% we don't know, 95% maybe. So I think it's entirely feasible that they don't want to see their habitat bases destroyed. Right. Hence why they're interested in nuclear weapons. I want to bring it back to Rendlesham just for a moment, because uh, in terms of our understanding, we've got a pretty decent one. We spoke at length with John Burroughs and Gary Osborne, who's done some work extrapolating the code. And I know you have an opinion on that, but you said there are 17 different incidents potentially associated with Rendlesham sightings yeah. and things like that. So yeah. maybe elaborate a little bit on that. And then also feel free to give your opinion on the figures I just named and everybody's kind of, Everybody's presenting information and it may be hard for the average person to discern. Are you guys working separately? Is somebody completely nuts and somebody has the truth? I know Rendlesham can be confusing from a viewer's perspective. So your thoughts would be appreciated. I think I think the way to look at it is that, and I've said this in the book, that I think that the Rendlesham Forest case, because there are so many different factors, different nights, numerous personnel involved, is the most complicated UFO case in history. Uh, and there's reasons why that. Uh, and it's also a really strange case in the sense that three of the principal witnesses have become researchers. And of those researchers, there's a lot of infighting between them at times. And mm -hmm. between other witnesses, they really don't get a platform in documentaries. So what I concluded over a long period of time is that the Rendlesham case is controlled. The narrative of the case from a former detective's point of view is has been controlled for over 25 years by just four people. Charles Holt, Jim Penniston, and John Burroughs, three of the witnesses. And one other person who's led a very prominent but quite a circuitous role, Nick Pope. All right? Those four people turn up in every documentary ever made about Rendlesham or elements of them, yeah? yeah. Now, the, I've been in lots of documentaries, and the way it works is that the, the researchers that approach you don't have a clue about UFOs, like 95% of the world. And they'll, you know, and, and they'll say, well, Colonel Holt said, you know, you, you, you should be involved in this. So what they do, because they're not like political journalists who know politics, They've done degrees in it, you know. They don't know anything. These researchers don't know anything. So, so they go. So somebody says, right, let's make a documentary about Rendlesham. Okay, you've got X amount of budget. All right, what do you want in the program? Uh, well, we don't really know anything about it. So you get a few researchers going through it, and they go, oh, he, John Burroughs, Charles Hall, and they do that. So they go to the same people every time, and unfortunately, they then give them the generally the opportunity to say, who else do you want in the program? So in a sense, they get given a lot more latitude than would ordinarily happen with any other type of TV program. Ordinarily, if it was a political program, we'd say we want that senator, that to congressman, that and it's a done deal. They've done their research; they know the subject. But in UFOs, researchers generally, TV researchers, don't have a clue. They're usually young people, fresh from college, a lot of them. They don't know anything. So it's the blind leading the blind. So you then shape the program that way. Now. The narrative is controlled by those four people. So in all the 50 or 60 English-speaking documentaries, they've always got a combination of those people in it. And that's not healthy. Now, what's not healthy is that when a new witness comes out, like Airman Steve Longero, who came out, I think, 2017, uh, although he'd already been mentioned historically 
in, in a book called Left at East Gate. But when he did a public interview with a British researcher called Philip Mantle, uh, the first thing that Holt said, oh, he's one of uh, Larry Warren's jinking pals, who's the controversial original military whistleblower. Oh, he's just coming out to help him, you know, he's just a drinking pal. And it dismissed him. Well, it turns out when you look at the context, Steve Longero had, I think, four years in the military police, uh, US Air Force Security Police, and then went on to have a 26-year police career, law enforcement. So this guy is absolutely stand-up. When Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, when I I first uh, began the seven-year collaboration period with Holt, I, I said, right, uh, I'm going to go away, research everything for about four months, and then come back to you. So this is early 2008. And I'm going to start firing off questions to you. Is that all right? And he went, yeah, that's fine. So anyway, four months later, I go back to Colonel Hart and said, uh, okay, name me the people in your team who went out in the forest with you, this small group. And he went, uh, well, there's obviously me, there's a lieutenant in England, uh, there's a disaster preparing the Munro Nevels, and, and and Sergeant Ball and I said, "Who's the fifth person?" He went, mm-hmm. and I, it escapes me for now. And I'm thinking, well, you should know who this is because it's actually on the audio tape. And I said, "It's Sergeant Adrian Bastinza." Oh yeah, that's so it. He was reluctant, and it gave me a hint then that something not quite right. And there was a reluctance to say Sergeant Adrian Bastinza. And it turns out that the reluctance is because Sergeant Adrian Bastinza would say that Colonel Holt was also involved in this second landing and named him as being present, of which he's denied. So you don't want to talk about somebody who's going to put him at another landing, yeah. which he's totally denied and, and basically said, oh, the base commander, Colonel Williams, now I talk of aliens, it's a load of rubbish. That was demonised, and it was demonised all the way along. And what I realised over the course of my five years of a deep dive is the, 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 the case is controlled by just four people. Other real witnesses don't really get uh, an opportunity to have lengthy interviews, if at all. Um, the, the narrative to most people that you're, and, and you're actually backing up this narrative, is that when I say the 17 different timed separate UFO incidents, you're thinking 17. I've never heard more than two or three. Yeah. Am, am, am I right? Yeah. yeah that's why we I haven't heard that before. Yeah. yeah. And this is why the narrative is controlled. Uh, when I interviewed Sergeant Adrian Bustinza, he not only confirmed that he and Larry Warren were in this second landing where the base commander's there, Colonel Holt's there, that it's being filmed and the security police, and that there are entities, or as Adrian Bustinza would say, silhouettes seen, some kind of life form. Larry Warren, the original military whistleblower, would call them entities, the three entities. But the key elements, the video, uh, the uh, cordon around, the, the base commander was there. The key elements are there. Think of that Ray Boucher admission but when i talked to adrian bastinza he said that he was involved in a a line of 20 security police officers going through the woods you know like when you see a search of the ground right find a knife or a piece of evidence you see a long line of police officers going over a field and they're looking down and they're going forward all together to try to find extra evidence well he did this in the forest well nobody had ever talked about a sighting like this 
So this is an entirely new event. Uh, when I talked to Steve Longero, Steve Longero was amazing because I didn't know he was going to say this, but he said that he had been inside the nuclear weapons storage area and was a direct first-hand witness when he saw a UFO shiny beam. So this is direct testimony. It's not hearsay. If you think of the David Grush thing, David Grush was saying, I have talked to people who are involved in these legacy programs. He, he, it's hearsay, but he's saying, I know a lot of the information around it, and people will back me up. So, but we'd never had a direct witness who'd said, they were inside the nuclear weapons storage area and they saw you fall. Now we do. Steve Ungero. Holt totally decried him, pulled him apart, said, no, no, he was never there. Why? You've got to ask yourself, why? Why are you pulling everybody in and saying, oh, this is great, new information, new, all come under the same roof and we'll work together to get the story out. There's so much infighting over the years. It's not right. That says to me that, the, that there's something, agendas at play. So Steve Ungero, he's a direct witness. But he had only just been on shift no more than a few days, literally less than five or six days, new onto the base, new onto shift. And then because of this incident and the UFO switches off the beam, after scanning all of the bunkers, it goes down the whole of the hot row, about 200 metre length, scanning in an arc beam, so an intelligent arc, and then the UFO turns its beam off and it then goes out heading towards Rendlesham Forest. And because... There's then like a, a major thing happening in the forest, which he didn't know what it was. They were asking for more people off shift to go into the forest. So because he was brand new on shift and he'd been just a supernumerary person walking around inside with an experienced airman, they then take him from the weapon storage area, which would never usually happen. You'd be on it all night. You wouldn't normally come out. But this was extraordinary. And because he was so new, he was supernumerary, they said, right, you get, you're coming out of the site, go get in that truck, and you're going off to the forest. And he didn't know what was really going on. But when he got to the forest, this was before Colonel Holt gets in the forest. So we're not talking about which night, right? It's before Holt turns up. He's led by, he said, Sergeant Penniston, who should be on leave for six days after having had that first night encounter. He's given six days furlough but mysteriously is in Steve Longero's account. And he goes out into the forest and he's led by Jim Penniston and 10 or 15 others to the original first night landing depressions. And guess what? They have a UFO site in there. So we didn't know that. So there is still a lot more information to come out. I talked to a guy called Rick Bobo who was in the tower and he's, he would say he was kind of like, give me mixed messages. He denied that he'd been in the guy who had contacted Holt regarding my video at the top of the tower because Holt had said it was a guy called Rick, so I'm thinking Rick Bobo. But he said, no, that's not me. So one of them's not telling the truth there. But Rick Bobo said that he'd seen a gigantic object stationary over RF Woodbridge when smaller objects, half a dozen or so, would come down and go off into the forest. But nobody else reports the gigantic object in the sky, and you'd think somebody would see a gigantic object in the sky. But in UFO terms, that kind of thing does happen. But what he also admitted to me is that he saw UFO at the, hen, at the end of the weapon storage area. And we actually did a Photoshop of looking down the row of nuclear bunkers. And if ever you've seen the photographs of the site, it's just like one long road mm -hmm. uh, with large bunkers either side. And it's about 200 meters long. Well, he kind of said where a UFO had been and he showed it above the forest at the end 
So this is another sighting. So what I'm saying is when you build all these up, and there are lots more other sightings like that, people don't realise that Munro Nevels, the disaster preparedness officer, had gone out because uh, the the uh, Colonel Conrad, who's technically a base commander, but not the base commander, had ordered him to go out with Lieutenant England into the forest. Now, the key thing with disaster preparedness officer Munro Nevels, a good guy who I spoke to for a couple of hours, is that he was picked up from his home by Lieutenant England and they'd go out into the forest. And England had said, Colonel Conrad wants you to go out and check it out. He was not a security police officer like England. So they go out there. They have a sighting too that nobody talks about. And yet he has mentioned very briefly. So when you break all these incidents down, there's about 17 of them. And let's talk about the one on the 23rd that nobody had heard about. I talked to a guy called Steve Wagner, Airman Steve Wagner, and he'd had an earlier sighting during 1918. And if you're reading the book, there are three significant, what I call precursor cases that happened throughout 1918, the build-up to this late December exchange. And he'd had a sighting, and when he'd reported it, he absolutely was given a hard time. He was told, keep quiet, keep your mouth shut, and he got a load of grief. So he thought, if ever I see anything else, I ain't reporting it because it was just, you know, I don't want the hard times. Uh, and so anyway, 23rd of December, and he's quite adamant that it's the 23rd of December, so it's pre-Christmas. All the sightings that you're aware of have happened from the Christmas night onwards. So this is entirely new when I speak to him. He said, well, I didn't see anything. I didn't see any craft, but he said a strange thing happened that we were called to the East Gate, the East Gate of Area Woodbridge, and apparently a security policeman had seen something descend into the forest nearby to the East Gate and was so upset by it and that he, you know, he didn't want to be alone, basically. So they go, he goes down with a colleague and they speak to this guy and they say, and he says, and he doesn't want to go, and he said, somewhat landed over there in that clump of trees or came down in the forest. So they go out into the forest, and they don't find a thing. They don't find any craft. But he said, there was a strange thing. I says, what was that? He said, we came across three indentations in the ground in a perfect triangle. Okay, now you think of the first night. This is not that location. This is within 150 metres of the East Gate. This is nowhere near where John and Jim had their sighting. All right? So this is extremely close. And, they, and, and he said, he said, yeah, it was in a clump of trees and there was a little clearing. Uh, we come across these depressions. Now, in the original Jim and John, their depressions were about nine or ten inches long and about one and a half inches deep, yeah. uh, evenly spread, as if it was triangular undercarriage that depressed evenly. And he went, yeah, I said, well, how big were these depressions? He said, oh, about five feet across, each one. So these weren't nine or ten inches. These were five feet across in a perfect triangle, pressed down. But he didn't report it because he didn't want any grief. And he was only really talking about it because I'd said, have you had any other kind of strange experiences? So it's amazing through questioning what you can get from people. And they're just quick examples of, of new cases that are uh, uh, expanded cases. A lot of people don't realize that before 
Holt got involved, there were other incidents going on prior to Adrian Bustinza and that line of 20, which nobody had heard of. There was a guy called Greg Batram who's mentioned in early interviews in about 1984 with Scott Colburn and Ray Boucher. They'd spoken to a guy called Greg Batram, as also had a Connecticut policeman called Larry Fawcett, who was one of the original investigators, and he was a, still a detective at the time, but he had an interest in the case. And there's an interview that Greg uh, Batram has with Larry Fawcett, quite a long, detailed interview. It's obviously in the book. Uh, and he says that they saw a strange mist on the ground in the forest, which has echoes of this second London. Uh, a strange circular patch of, of green, yellow-type mist on the ground. That um, it then is described as potential life forms are seen that frighten them so much that he and his three colleagues literally run away, scared as you would be, and they run towards what's called the staging area, which is the area where vehicles had to stop because they couldn't go any deeper into the forest because there was no roads, no pathways. So that's a significant area. It's where all the vehicles ended up and there were lots of people milling around that area. And basically, he said, as they were running back to the staging area, they saw Larry Warren, the original military whistleblower, who's supposedly not there, according to some people, just arriving with Colonel Holt. Colonel Holt denies all that, that Larry Warren was there. But don't forget, Adrian Bustinza said, in my four and a half hours, transatlantic phone call with him when I did this advanced interview with him, set it up right and then handed it over to him and he recalled lots of things including harrowing details of his interrogation at the hands of special operatives and the Air Force Office of Special Investigation OSI that he said Larry Warren was there but he said something different as well he said next to the craft he said I don't know why they picked Larry, Larry Warren but he was closer to it than I was so he's confirming that there was this second London, this one that Holt never wanted to talk about. Yeah. And the thing was there is he said to me that was entirely new, he said, but it wasn't the Holt night. That was another night. I said, what do you mean it was another night? He said, it was another incident for me, which he'd never, ever said. So again, this is another night of activity that makes me think that there's four nights of consecutive activity. People don't realise what happened to a woman called uh, Lieutenant Bonnie Templin, who was one of the shift officers, an officer, a young female black officer. She's literally run off the road by a UFO. A vehicle is run off the road by a UFO that's travelling alongside of her. She loses control because she's so scared. On a rural public road, she rolls it, the vehicle, onto its side. And she gets out and the UFO stopped and is looking down at her. So she picks up a weapon and starts shooting at it. All of that covered up by the US Air Force that I got through a guy called Airman's Michael Stacey Smith. So there is so much things that you weren't aware of that to do with Remdeson Forest. So if you haven't read the book, I suggest that you do, because what I've tried to do is look at the facts, step away, take personalities out of it, but just present the facts. And right at the start, there's a quote by Trey Gordy, who was a, a former uh, Republican congressman. And he said, the facts are the facts. They're neither a Republican or Democrat. The facts are the facts. And that was my mantra. 
I wanted to get the facts out. When I did the book and launched it, there was no pre-publicity whatsoever because the people would not want this book to come out because it contains more information on Rendlesham Forest across the board than any other book. And if you read, read all the reviews by the researchers, the professional researchers, the guy, Don Schmidt, the top guy in Reswell, does the, the foreword. He says it's like no other book going. That's his words. He says because it's a forensic examination of the case by a former detective, and it's brilliant. Now, his words, not mine. So I've been very humbled by the kind words of all the researchers that have read it. So that's just a flavour in an hour of where we are. And everything nice. else is amazing at the moment. And Gary, where, uh, where can people find you on social media and where can they uh, purchase your book? The book is only available on Amazon um, uh, in, in all countries around the world. Uh, it's called uh, Rendlesham, it's called Non-Human, which is very typical now when you think of the David Grush thing. Non-Human, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents, I've had an S because there's multiple incidents, 42 years of denial. Because all those 17 incidents, not one of them can be explained in terrestrial technology. Uh, people come up with stories, oh, it's plasma, oh, it's a, it's a special program, it's, you know, it's electronic. A lighthouse, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it bullshit, absolute yeah. bullshit. So this is the facts, and I've laid out the facts. It's 500 pages, and it's available on Amazon. But my magazine is UFO Truth Magazine. It goes all around the world as a PDF. You don't have to do anything. It's bi-monthly, every two months, PDF sent to you. And it's 96 pages. And it's www.ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you very much, Gary. We appreciate your time. And thank you for clarifying. Again, we if, if, are in the if process of learning, go, right? If, if you want me back to discuss things, because we've kind of rushed over it, it's such a complex case. You could do two hours easily and For still sure. scratch the surface. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we may uh, at some point. Read the, the book. Promise back, me you'll uh, read the book. Promise oh, me. Well, we have to buy it now. 500 pages. That's uh, that's an in-depth look into it. Yeah. Well, read yeah. the book and let me know what you think. Honestly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, appreciate you clarifying some myths because, again, it is a case that a lot of people think the they have story. all the answers. But the not everybody that, does, and there's more info, as you said, that may not have made it into some of these other copies, documentaries, no, programs. No, they, they, We've they, interviewed they, two people, and we don't have the full story, right? Yeah. The majority of people, especially in the United States, have not got the full handle. And in fact, most people come back to me and say, I didn't have a clue about nearly half of what's in the book. All historical old interviews transcribed, new interviews. Go look at it, and I think you'll be surprised at what's in there. Awesome. awesome. Thank you for joining us, Gary, and uh, we'd love to have you back again one day soon. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Perfect. And just before we go, Louis, I just want to remind the the listeners, of course, to just comment, um, you know, below on the, the comment section. Let us know what you think. Like and subscribe, of course. And we reach out to everybody that reaches out to us. Uh, we like to reply to them, whether it's Twitter, YouTube or whatever. So please get in contact with us. And if you have any questions at all, please look at Gary Heseltine. I pronounced that correctly and uh his book of course we uh strongly suggest that we all get educated on this case it is a famous case and a big one at that and like gary mentioned it should be made into a movie and with that louis we're going to sign off today this was awesome i've learned a lot more about this case than i did previously gary again thank you so much thank you very much